Yes, Lord, I'm just so grateful for this chance, even just to pray with Marvin before this message, God. To be reminded and re-centered on the reality of your presence, on the paradox of paradise. That we, even though we are fallen, even though we are prone to wander, by your grace, God, you invite us in. And you don't invite us in as sinners, you invite us in as the redeemed because you died for us. Lord, I pray that as we dig in to your word, as we look at these five verses in Romans and as we reflect on what it means for us today, I pray, God, that right now, you would, by your spirit, stir within our hearts. I pray, God, that we would walk out that much closer to you, whether it's a small little step or a giant leap, God, we trust your, you to lead us, so have your way. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King and our propitiation. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you about what I would call in this text a righteousness Manifesto, a righteousness manifesto. You may be wondering, what in the world is a manifesto? A manifesto is a written statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or views of its issuers. I just got back yesterday from going with my son Tristan on his eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C., it was incredible. We had a red-eye trip. Just we were, we were supposed to sleep on the plane uh, on the way there, and then we literally got to D.C., spent all day touring. We'd get home late at night and go and do it again all week, and just overwhelmed by the heritage and the stories that I get to hear that I learned in history class about what it means to be an American, about what it means to, to live in the land that I have been graciously brought up in. And as I was thinking about this and thinking about the sermon, this word manifesto really came to life for me because I got to see quite a few manifestos. In particular, there were a few moments that really hit me. One, we were touring in Philadelphia, Independence Hall. This is a little... This is the hall right here. And got to sit in the room where George Washington sat on this chair and he was surrounded by the first Continental Congress. And they worked on and got to read the Declaration of Independence. This incredible statement written by Thomas Jefferson, signed and and and. and declared to England, it said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. This is a great manifesto. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I thought, man, what a manifesto. 
And then we were in Gettysburg. And we got to learn about the Battle of Gettysburg and got to see all the graves of those who died in Gettysburg, fellow citizens fighting for freedom. And we got to read and hear of the manifesto of Abraham Lincoln, where he says, four score and seven years ago, remember this speech? And he's speaking to these people on this hallowed ground, and it's hallowed ground not because of the people that are there, but because of the people that died on it. And there's this incredible moment when he says, and we right now are on a very battle, a battlefield ourselves. A battlefield that is, in essence, whether we'll be able to keep this vision, this manifesto that was started alive. I remember just sitting there and thinking about the weight of 200 years ago and me sitting here and seeing the fruits of these manifestos. And I was thinking about this text that we're reading. This Romans chapter three, and I believe in this text, Paul is writing the most incredible manifesto of the gospel. And what was interesting about these moments what was interesting about reading them and reflecting on them is it seemed to me that these manifestos always grew from a place of deep conflict and struggle. It's not like everything was going great and then all of a sudden, like, hey, let's add to the greatness. <laughs> There was a struggle for freedom. You know, taxation without representation is what? Tyranny, right? There was a struggle for the, the, the paradox of what it means to be an American, to have liberty, and to know that there's slaves that are, have, don't have this liberty, and, and, and a struggle to truly live out this constitution that says that all men are created equal. There was this deep, deep struggle. And I believe in this text, as we look at this passage and as we reflect on Romans chapter three, Romans chapter one, all the way through verse 20 of chapter three, that there's this moment, these, these struggles that are highlighted. And Paul makes it very clear that we were in this struggle with this three-letter word we call sin. And he makes it very clear as we've studied the book of Romans that all of us, that no one is righteous, that no, not one, that we've all fallen, that we turned in, we traded in the very glory of God that he put on us as his image bearers in the Garden of Eden. He created us perfect in his image, but we exchanged that for the image of creatures. And he writes about beautifully, deeply, profoundly about this struggle that we are in. And he spends three chapters, I feel like just pounding into my head and your head, this struggle. That in essence we all are in this spiral, this struggle of sin. And then I would say just like Thomas Jefferson wrote these famous words. Just like Tom, uh, 
Abraham Lincoln wrote four score, just like Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream. Paul says two words that I believe frame this manifesto, and they're these two words, but now. But now. He's saying we are in this struggle. Beloved, we are struggling with sin. We are lost. We are prone to wander. Some of us are stuck with self-righteousness and, and, and religiousness and, and running and running and running and we're tired and we're worn out or we're, or we're hopeless. And he's writing about this moment and then he uses these two words that change the trajectory. He says, but now, and he opens up in this manifesto, what I would call the way back to righteousness. We've talked about our sin and the way back is through faith. It's through faith. If you have your Bibles or your devices, I'd like if you could look at me, look with me at Romans chapter three, verse 21 says this. It says, but now, the righteousness of God, remember this is the righteousness manifesto, the, the righteousness of God, the qualities, the attributes of who God is has been manifested. I love this word manifested. It feels very close to manifesto. It's, it's this idea that it's here, it's, it's right now. It's, you can taste it, you can see it, you can feel it. He says the righteousness of God, it's right here. It's been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What's he saying here? He's saying the entire Old Testament, the entire story of humanity, starting from the fall in Eden and following through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David and the prophets and everything pointing to the, the need for a savior, to the need to be back in the righteousness of God. He's saying all of that is a witness to it. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. He says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The but now moment is through faith. It's not through works. It's not through trying to perfectly follow the law. We've seen the story of the Old Testament in that. He says it's through faith, and it's through faith in Jesus. And then Paul explains how this will work because the, the reader, especially the one who knew the Old Testament law, the one who's been studying who God is, automatically feels some tensions automatically reads this and say, that's great, but what do we do because God, the righteousness of God is righteous, it's perfect, it's holy. God's not one that just sees evil going on, he's a just God, if he sees evil going on, if he sees sin in me, he must deal with my sin. He's not just gonna be like, it's okay, Logan, get him next time. He's gotta do something with this evil, with this, our, our tendency to wander. And Paul anticipates that here. 
Because see, we don't just have a way of righteousness, he also gets into what I would call the gift of righteousness, and that's grace. And it seems to me he breaks this down into two categories that I would call the first one our good and the second one God's glory. Our good and God's glory. First, our good is a word Paul uses called justification. Justification, if you've been in theology class or been in Bible studies, this is a deep, rich word. And we're gonna get more into it as we study Romans more. But I believe this word justification is all about God's grace and all about this reality that we are invited into. Look at 22, continued on and following. It says this. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, got that from the rest earlier this chapter, and fallen short of the glory of God, and they are justified, this is all who believe, from verse 22, they are justified by his grace as a gift. They are justified by his grace as a gift. Now before we get into that, I wanna make, make clear here, when Paul says all have sinned and fallen short, I've been reading this and studying this, and, and I, I read this article by a guy named Dane Ortland that I think uh, is, is fantastic as, as they're writing about this truth. The, the all have sinned is what he's saying is, is later on in Romans, Paul writes about how we're all, inherit, we're all descendants of Adam. And because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we all have inherited, we are born with this sin nature. Now that's not to say that a baby is born and they're, they're instantly sinning, but they are born with sin. This curse that has come upon us. All have sinned. And there's a lot of interpretations and understanding of when he says, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, what that means. It seems to me as I've been reading this is that if you look at those words, this fallen short relates to lacking the glory of God. That we were created, remember, in God's image. The image of God and the glory of God are very closely related in Scripture. And so we were created in God's image, but then because of sin, us being the image bearers of God, the very glory of God, the display of God in his creation, when God created us, we, we have this sin problem, and now we are tarnished. We still have some of his glory. We still are his image bearers, but not to the, to the perfection and the purity and the beauty of how he created us to be fruitful and multiply and, and display his glory. And so all, because of our sin, have fallen short. When people see humanity, we don't just see God. We see sin, we see struggle, we see, we see battling, we even see evil. And so he sets this up, he's reminding us of this, and then he uses this, he talks about the gift of God, justification. This word justification, a good definition, Webster here, is this. Justification is the action 
of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill, or I'm sorry, the action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. I was looking at the next definition. The action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. This justification oftentimes is used in a courtroom judiciary setting where a judge is making a statement saying, a statement of innocence. And so when Paul says we are justified by grace, he's saying God has justified. In this but now manifesto, he's saying you and me, fellow sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God by his grace in this incredible, there's this incredible wonder of the gospel that God looks at you, he looks at me, and he can justify us. And I love this reality. I was listening to uh, my favorite preacher, a guy named Timothy Keller. He passed away just a couple weeks ago. And he was talking about this reality of justification and talking about how justification is a little different than forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is to say, I forgive you, you're free to go. It's a statement that your sins against me are forgiven, and we are a people that believe in the forgiveness of sin. This is part of our confession. But justification is, is a little different. Justification is not so much a, a, a declaration that you're free to go. Justification is a declaration that you're free to come. Do you see this? Justification is an invitation into the very presence of God. God, in all his glory, by justification, says you are free to come. This is the beauty of this righteousness manifesto, that God, through justification, can see you and see me as righteous. Now, maybe you're feeling the tension. How? How, Pastor Logan? I, I still struggle. You just spent three chapters, Paul, telling us that we're not free, that we are unrighteous, and no one's righteous, no, not one. So God can just forget all of that? It's this great dilemma. We have a righteous, good God, and we have our unrighteousness, but God wants to make us righteous. How can he do that? And there's this word that Paul uses to explain that. He doesn't just tell us the reality of the gospel. He wants to explain to us the richness and hear this, the cost of the gospel. I heard this all the time when we were in D.C. Freedom is not free. And we see this here. And it's in a word that Paul uses called propitiation. Propitiation. This is a part of God's glory. This propitiation is the way that we can see God's glory again. Propitiation, the definition here, is the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something or to appease. Some of your translations would say atonement. It's related to the atonement theology, the idea that because of our unrighteousness, that because 
all have sinned because we are prone to wander that God's wrath, his righteous wrath, must be poured out. And even the words, the roots here, pro and pity, are to deflect or to, re, or, or to um, redirect God's wrath off of us and into something else. And we see this here. This idea of propitiation is, is seen throughout the Old Testament through blood sacrifice, through the sacrifice of an innocent animal for the sins of the people. And Paul gets into this right here. He says this, he says, through, he just said justification by grace as a gift, and then he explains it, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, this is to be bought back, to be redeemed, to be restored. He says, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Once again, that's the way of righteousness is what? It's faith. But notice here, it says that God does the work here. Propitiation is a work of God. It is for his glory. He puts forth as a propitiation, as an appeasement for us by the very righteous blood of Jesus to be received by faith. And what, and what did this do? This was to show. It was to display. It was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we read this and some, especially today, would say, this is divine child abuse. Why would God the Father pour out his wrath on God the Son? And we tend to want to rip apart the Trinity. But see, the confession of our faith is that, that God himself poured out his wrath on God himself. There is this mystery to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel that God in his wrath poured, poured out in his justice, poured out his wrath on himself and he took it willingly so that he could be just, deal with our sin, and he could be the justifier, the one who takes on our sin. It's actually quite beautiful. It's surprising. It's unreasonable. And it's a beautiful statement of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done, what I would call a righteousness manifesto. And an invitation to you and an invitation to me into the but now. And the question as we read this is so what? We sit here in 2023 and you ask ourselves, so what? As I think about this question, I imagine there's many of us here who feel stuck. Who feel stuck. 
or maybe just tired, or maybe just worn out of trying, or maybe just full of shame and guilt at our struggles, maybe just wishing that we would have deeper, richer relationships, maybe feeling lonely, maybe feeling like nobody sees me, maybe feeling like nobody likes me. And I think the, the question I've been asking myself as I've been reading this is this. This is the question I've been asking myself, and I think you should ask yourself, is what are you justified by? As you think about what you're living for, what are you justified by? Are you justified by performance? Are you living for, for, for success? For providing for your family, for, for taking care and, and raising up your children to be great citizens and to be successful? Are you justified by the way people see you? Are you justified by the, by the experiences that you have? Are you, are you justified by likes and follows? Are you justified by the responsibilities you have? Are you, are you justified by the expectations your parents or your grandparents or your teachers have put on you. The gospel says the only true, beautiful justification that we should live in is to be justified by God. Is to let our life be a life that is living in the reality and the beauty of the invitation of justification, of paradise itself, because I can be in the very presence of God because of Jesus. And I think we can't hear this enough. I believe we need to move out or off our self-justifying but eyes into the God-justifying but now movement. That's a lot of words. Couldn't figure out how to make it sound good, but that's what I wanted to say. For some of us, we are stuck in justifying our life, in justifying everything apart from what God has said. And I think in a very similar way that Abraham Lincoln said, we are in a battlefield, in a moment. In the same way that Martin Luther King Jr. is standing before a people with the memorials of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln looking at him and he says this on a whim out of his gut that he has this dream. I believe Paul is exhorting you in a very similar, if not richer and deeper way that you are invited into the but now, right now. And the way is faith in Jesus. And the invitation is this, put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
This is the most important piece of the gospel for you and me. And it's not about the size of your faith. We say this time and time again. It's not about saying, man, I have the strongest, the greatest faith there is around. That, that does not matter. It is the object of your faith that matters. It is Jesus being the one who you put faith in that when the storms come, when the struggles come, when the doubts come, when you find yourself in a difficult moment, you recognize, I live in the but now. I live with the very righteousness of God. He's doing a work in me. I am a new creation. Jesus has changed everything, and therefore I live as his image bearers to reflect his glory. This is why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's all people, Jew and Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. How are you justified, brother, sister, beloved? Be justified by your faith in Jesus. Years ago, I was preaching one of my first sermons. And I was preaching a sermon like this about the gospel. I typically preach sermons about the gospel every time. But there was this moment. We were going to sing a song afterwards, and I was going to invite people to respond. I was a young preacher, never done anything like this, and I remember sitting here and I preached this sermon and I'm just wondering, is God gonna call anyone to faith today? And right in the back there was this big black guy. And he walked down and he kneeled down right here. And I had no idea who he was, I'd never met him before and I prayed with him. His name was Richard. And ever since that day, he faithfully came here and he would come into my office and he had questions about the Trinity and he would tease me because I was a Giants fan and he was a Dodger fan and, and his team was always better than my team and he would make sure I knew that. <laughs> this last week as I was in D.C., I, got, I heard that Richard had, he, he passed away. Totally un Unexpected. And as I was listening, as I was thinking about that and just missing him, I was also experiencing this profound joy because I knew that Richard had put his faith in Jesus. And, and not just that he had said a prayer, but that he had lived it out, that he had, he had been walking and growing and he was greeting every single one of you. If you know Richard, he shook your hand. If you have kids, he gave them a mint. Even though Doug told him not to. And he was living, and he is in the butt now, and he's there right now. And I would encourage you, perhaps today you've been faking it. Perhaps today you've been wondering, could this be true? I believe Jesus is calling you to have faith in Jesus. 
to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ, the very Godhead himself, the very God-man himself. And as you live in this, I believe there's two pieces, components to belief. The first is be who he says you are. Be who he says you are. God says you are his. God says you belong to him. All the warts, all the struggles, all the addictions, all the mistakes, all the things that other people have said, God says you're justified. And God calls you to live justified. I'm so unworthy. You are unworthy, but yet God sees you and makes you righteous, and therefore you become worthy. Be. And this is not about doing, it's about being. Hear the difference. It's not about earning, it's about being. It's about being the image bearer that God created you to be. It's about being the glory of God that, is, that you were created with. Be who he says you are. Second, live to demonstrate his glory. When we put our faith in Jesus, God does something. He fills us with his spirit, and all of a sudden, we no longer live for our own glory. We live for his. Just this past week, I, got to, I saw a video interview of this young woman's softball team that just won the championship, the Oklahoma Sooners. Thank you. And there were these three young ladies who were being interviewed. And they were asking them about what they got all this joy from. And I loved it. They could have talked about how their team chemistry, they could have talked about you know, how hard they worked. And one of the ladies said, honestly, our joy is from the Lord. She said, yeah, we're super excited that we won this championship, but, but we've also been through some really hard things. And she talked about how that her joy comes no matter what, whether you win or whether you lose, because they, they, they profess their faith in Jesus, and you could see it on her. And then the next girl spoke, and she said the same thing, even richer and deeper. And the next girl spoke, and it was like this whole team that had been living to demonstrate. And I, and I watched that, and I was so encouraged, because I'm watching on ESPN, and I probably hated it. They did. But, but it was the, the, these young ladies were giving God all this glory because they had they experiencing this. And I believe that part of being a people of the butt now, part of being a people that when we see Paul make this pivot in, in Romans chapter three, when he's calling you to live in the butt now, is that you are now called not just to be who he says you are, you're called to live to demonstrate his glory. You are called to be witnesses. You are called to testify. You are called to be, to give testimony for what God has done. I want to leave you with this passage. Isaiah 43.10 says this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, Jesus, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Beloved, you are his witnesses. Go and tell the world. And my prayer for you, 
as you walk out, that you would walk out knowing that through faith you can be justified and you are called to live for God's glory and his glory alone. In a few moments, we're gonna get to sing a great, beautiful hymn. The hymn is called, It Is Well. It's a hymn written from a story in a place of utter disaster. by a guy who's in the middle of a storm, and yet it's a profession of faith in God. And I pray that as we respond to this, that we would join in professing our faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful that you've invited us into the but now, that you have called us for our good and your glory to be people of your kingdom. And I pray, God, right now that as we sing together this beautiful hymn, as we confess our faith in you together, Jesus, that you would speak into the storm, that you would speak into the struggle, that you would speak into the doubt, that you would speak into the hurt, that you would speak into the pain, that we would hear you say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle in heart, and you will find rest in your soul. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we sing together, that our restless hearts would find rest in you. I pray, Lord, that we would join in confessing our faith in you, the righteous one, and that your righteous manifesto would indwell deeply within us and we would walk out firmly, resolute, to continue to live with our faith in you. We love you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. Please rise and sing together.